0: and welcome to episode 236 of Greater Than Code. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with my friend, Rain Hendricks.
1: Thanks, Jamie. And I am another one of your hosts, and I am here with my friend, Damian Burke.
2: Thanks, Rain. And I'm here, in addition to with the host, our guest today, Marlena Compton. Marlena Compton is a tech community organizer, designer, and collaboration artist who has worked in the tech industry for 18 years. She grows tech communities and organizes conferences such as PearConf and Let's Sketch Tech. Marlena has worked for companies like IBM and Atlassian. This has left her with a lifelong appreciation for quality code, empathy, and working together as a team. When she isn't working, Marlena enjoys lettering, calligraphy, and walking her dog. Welcome to the show, Marlena.
3: Hi, thank you so much.
2: So I know you're prepared for this, same thing we, we do for all of our guests. We're going to start with the first question. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it?
3: Yeah, so my superpower is bringing the arts to tech. And that is sort of teaching people the value of creative arts, such as writing, sketching, music, and more, and how this relates to the tech industry, helping creative types feel more at home in tech, and helping folks who are mostly in the science track in school, learn why they need the creative arts for critical thinking and thinking through problems. So it's like you have to give people a space to do this, learning from a peer perspective versus top-down perspective. So this includes building community for folks to explore these things.
0: So you came to tech from art previously, is that right?
3: I have a wild academic background of <laughs> interdisciplinary studies which will not get you a job for anything but like renting a car <laughs> like <laughs> or whatever and also later I did computer science but while I was getting my liberal arts degree I did a lot of art history and a lot of painting in a lot of theater. I wonder if
0: you could speak to like coming into the tech industry as someone who is already an artist and considers himself an artist, like how that translated for you, like what skills from being an artist do you think were like helpful to you as you were starting in tech?
3: Sure. So I think that if you know that you're an artistic type, like, I knew how important arts were for me. But I think for children, often they get a lot of pressure to find something that will get them a job. And it's not like this isn't for good reason. You know, it's like, we got to be able to pay our bills. On the other hand, when you're a creative type, it's such a core part of your personality. You can't really separate it from anything. And if you try to just, you know tamp it down. It's going to come out somehow. So I was this college graduate and I was having a really hard time getting a job and figuring out what I wanted to do that would make enough money to support me. And computer science was literally the last thing I tried and I seemed to do okay at it. So I kept doing it. (laughs) And that's how I got into it. I wish... That we'd had boot camps when I started learning computer science, but there weren't any. And so all I could do was go back to community college. So I went to community college. I had to take every single math class over again, calculus, I had to take three times, but I stuck with it. I didn't know if I could do it, but I just, you know, I kept taking the classes and eventually it worked. So that's, <laughs> that's how I got into the tech industry. And it's, it's like, it's totally okay to do this just to make money. That's why I did it.
2: So then coming in with this art background, this which seems really broad, you didn't, you didn't talk about anything specific, what insights and connections were you able to make between art and computer science and art and software engineering?
3: Sure. So for me, building software is a creative process. In fact, this is something I've believed for a very long time because as soon as I got out with my newly minted CS degree, and I knew that I needed to create and draw and write and do all of those things, eventually I started looking around for, like, okay, what in computer science is kind of a more visual place? And it used to be. Like people would think of diagramming software, Hello Visio, Rational Rose, which is, that is quite a throwback. Who here? (laughs) The UML. Yes. And, you know, I would look at these things like System Architect, where it's like the idea was that you could literally draw out pieces and then it would make your code, which was... (laughs) <laughs> which, which was a, I think, an epic fail. If you look at it from, did it actually ever write successful code? I there was, have never. There's
1: another option, which was the expensive architects draw the boxes, and then the cheap engineers put the code in the boxes.
3: Well, but see, so you need a brain in there, and this is all about <laughs> the brain. Yeah, like this is. So, I think one sort of transformation that my thinking had to go through. So, I had to go from like this computer science perspective of find a way to chop up all your thoughts into little discrete logical pieces so that you can make classes and objects and things like that. And instead, look at the brain as an organ in your body and we take more of a holistic perspective where it is your brain is connected to your thoughts, is connected to like your internal axes and GPS system and mapping system and how all of that comes together to problem solve.
1: Yeah. I love it. Without bodies, we couldn't think about things.
3: Indeed. This past year, I've spent a lot of time specifically investigating this connection and One of the things I did was read Barbara Tversky's book, Mind in Motion, and the premise of her book is that spatial thinking is the foundation of abstract thought. That is how you orient yourself in the world and how you perceive of space around you and yourself in that space is what allows you to organize ideas, take perspectives that are based in imagination and things like that.
1: Yeah. And this ties into, um, Lakoff's work on basic metaphors, because basic metaphors are how we structure our thought, but they're all about the world. So like, think about the metaphor of containment. You have a thing, it has an inside and an outside. There may be a portal that gets you from the inside to the outside. So this is how houses work, right? This is how we think about houses, but it's also how we think about relationships. It's how we think about code. And then there's, you combine the, the that basic metaphor with the metaphor of traveling, starting at a place, traveling along a path, ending up at another place. You put those two metaphors together. You can have complex thoughts about achieving goals, but These are all metaphors based on, like you're saying, our perception of living in, in, in in a world that has 3D space.
3: Yes. And maps are such a big part of that. So when I was reading through this particular book, she goes into things like maps and how we map ideas and things like that. And there is like quite a bit of science behind it. And even from metaphor, she writes that metaphor is what happens when our thoughts overflow our brains and we need to put them out into the world.
2: So putting these thoughts, these ideas back out into the world and into some sort of spatial representation, is that how you view the, the tech note taking or diagramming sort of thing?
3: Absolutely. So I guess for listeners, I want to back up a little bit because I think something that Damien knows about me and also Jamie and Ryan from looking at the biography is that I'm very into sketchnotes. And just to bring us out of the depths (laughs) a little bit, I can tell you about why I turned to sketchnoting and why I started doing it. And it was because I was trying to yeah. learn JavaScript and yes, Damien, I know how you feel about JavaScript. Some of us like it. <laughs> and I,
2: I don't want to show my cards too much here, <laughs> but I will say the fact that you had difficulty with it is, is telling. <laughs>
3: Well, but I also had difficulty learning C, Java, (laughs) Erlang.
2: So how how did did the notes (laughs) help?
3: Well, so I went to Cascadia JS and this was my first, well, it wasn't my first, but it was the language conference and I was just learning JavaScript and I didn't understand half of it. It just went over my head. So to try and create some memory of it or some like try to figure it out, I started drawing. I had seen sketch notes on the web. They were experiencing kind of a bump in popularity at the time. I think Mike Roedy's book had just come out, and it helped. And that was sort of like what introduced me to this whole world, and eventually. You know, we're talking about when thoughts overflow and you turn to metaphor. And this is exactly what was happening for me, was Barbara Tversky refers to these pictures we draw as glyphs. They can be more complicated than language. And that is why when we're really trying to figure something out, We're not going to be writing an essay, maybe sometimes, but for the most part, we'll start diagramming.
0: I also wanted to talk about zines while you were on, and I was thinking about zines when you were talking about this, because I feel like there's like a few different kind of mediums of art that I do, and some of them are more intentional than than others. And to me, zines are about like, I'm thinking this, and it needs to like exist in physical space. And like, then it will be done and I can stop thinking about it because it exists.
3: I love that so much. And it's exactly what zines are there for. So zines are DIY publishing. And zines are the kind of publishing that happens for topics that you know, like, I think it happens a lot for people who are underrepresented in some way because you're not going to have access to a publisher and it's going to be harder for you to get your, to get any kind of like official book out. But then sometimes it's also just, maybe you don't want that. Maybe you want your, your zine to be a more informal publication. And I love how zines kind of, they are all so super niche right? Like, you can put anything to get Like, define the word zine. Ha!
0: <laughs> it's so hard. People will argue about this in the zine community for, like, days and days. <laughs> How to and define the
3: word. That's actually part of the power of zines because it means it can be whatever you want, which means whatever you want to create is okay. And I think that's really... What we're trying to get down into here is having different ways of expressing and problem solving be okay and accepted.
1: Just going so, to point out that containment is a metaphor we use for categories. So we're talking about what is inside the zine category. I
2: want to go back to the um well. Malena, you said zines were do-it-yourself publishing, DIY publishing, but blogs are also do-it-yourself publishing. So zines have a physicality to them, and that feels like that's an important aspect. Can you talk about like that or why that is?
3: Well, there are also digital zines. So, yeah. <laughs> but they defy
2: just... containers, containerization <laughs> in categories.
3: <laughs> well, it, if we... Want to talk a little bit about physical zines. That even is interesting. And Jamie, maybe you have a few thoughts about this that you can share too, because there are just so many different ways to format a zine.
0: Well, I know that digital zines are a thing and I've read some digital zines that I've very much enjoyed. To me, the physicality of zines is like a big part of them. um, And like a lot of what's appealing about them for me and I think that part of the reason for that is that as you were getting at, like people can write whatever they want, people who might not have a chance to write um, in other formats. And like, most importantly about that, you can't censor a zine. It's impossible because someone makes it themselves and then they give it to whoever they want to have it. It's a very personal experience. And there's like no middleman who can like tell you what you can or can't say. And so I think that like having that physical piece of paper that you then hand directly to someone is like what makes that possible and like not putting it on the internet is kind of also what makes that possible like you have this thing nobody can edit what's in it it's all up to you nobody can search for it on a search engine if you don't want someone to see it then you don't give them one and it's just kind of like a holdover from what a lot of media was more like before the internet. And I appreciate that about them.
2: <laughs> yeah. To me, it sounds so much like the Federalist papers, like Thomas Paine's common sense. Oh, those are zines thing. for sure. <laughs> I'm printing them out. I'm handing them out here. Read this. <laughs> those are zines. Okay. And
0: political zines are like a huge, like subsection of like pamphlets and, you know, all sorts of political ideology.
1: That's where printing started was with the publishing of zines. That's my argument.
3: This is the power of print. It's the power of print. And that power is, it's something that you don't necessarily get with the internet. Zines are an archive as well. And I don't think we can just say, so when I did the first Let's Sketch Tech conference, I had an editor from Chronicle Books come and she talked about publishing. And when I was talking to her about doing this talk, what I thought was most interesting about our conversation was she said, books aren't going away. Books are never going away because we are so connected to our hands and our eyes. Books are always going to be there. Printed words, printed You know, pamphlets, zines, they are, I think they're going to outlast computers. (laughs) I mean, think about like how long a CD or magnetic tape is going to last versus the oldest book in the world.
1: Yeah. And by the way, if you don't think that printing was about zines, go Google the pamphlet wars. We think it's about the, (laughs) like publishing the Bible, but the vast majority of stuff that was printed was pamphlets, zines. Mm -hmm.
2: And we can look at like things that have survived through history. and it's really truly it's really about paper, from uh, Shakespeare's works to the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is how things have survived.
3: And on another aspect of this is the fact that we are human, we have human eyes, and those eyes have limits as to how much they can look at a screen. And looking at paper, and also the physical manipulation of that paper, I think, is a very important aspect of zines. Like, so my favorite zine ever, which is sadly lost to me, was this very small print zine. And it was the kind that is printed literally on one piece of paper and is folded up. But it had the most magnificent center folds where you open it up and it's this awesome picture of prints, and the person even taped a purple feather in the centerfold part of it. And it's like, that's an experience you're only going to get from like this kind of printed physical medium.
2: So, yeah, I'm seeing a pattern here, uh, communicating ideas through physical mediums.
0: And I think that because zines are like, so kind of DIY and like low tech that people do really interesting things with paper to kind of express what they're going for. Like, I've been doing scenes for a long time and like with friends, but my first one that I ever did by myself, I was like, I had this black and white photo of a house that had Christmas lights on it. And I was trying to be like, how am I going to express this feeling that I have about this picture that I want to express in this Medium, Like, I'm going to go to Kinko's and make copies of this for five cents, and how is it going to look the way I want? And so I ended up manually using a green highlighter to highlight over all of the Christmas lights in every single copy of of this scene so that everyone would see, like, the green Christmas lights that I wanted them to, like, feel what I was feeling about. And, like, I think that's a pretty simple example because it's not, like, extremely like a lot of work to put highlighter in your zine either. But I think that like people have to think about that and like how they want to convey something. And then people have done a lot of really interesting things like taping feathers into their books.
3: (laughs) Yeah. This is a way of slowing down our thought process, which I don't think we talk about enough because Right now in our culture, it's all about being faster, being lol, 10x. And this kind of like making a zine is a great way to reflect on things that you've learned. So I would really like to take a minute to just talk about zines at work and zines in a professional setting. Because I've noticed that one thing people think as soon as I start talking about zines is, why do I need this in my job? Why do we need this in tech? And I think that zines are a great way to help people on teams kind of surface the unspoken knowledge that lives in the team. Or it's also a way to play with something that you're trying to learn and share with other people. And I'd like to hear, like, Jamie, do you have thoughts about this?
0: I have a thought, but I'm not sure how directly related it is to what you just said, and I feel self-conscious about it. (laughs) But, like, I like to teach people to make zines who aren't familiar with zines or haven't made them before. And, like, the thing that I think they really, that I try to teach people that I think zines can teach you is that, like, you can just do this. You know, it's not hard. You Anyone can do it. It doesn't take like a specific skill that you can't just learn. And so they're accessible in that way. But I think it's also like a kind of bigger lesson about what you can do. <laughs> like if you want to do something, and that's kind of how I feel about tech. If you want to learn to code, like it's not magic. You can learn how to do it. And if you want to do a zine, you can learn how to do it. And to me, like those thoughts go together. I feel like that wasn't exactly what you just asked.
3: I'm sorry.
2: I like it, though.
3: (laughs) It does tie into the fact that it's important to help people feel at home at work. Well, I mean, you're not at home at work, but to feel as though they are in the right place at work. And this type of making zines and allowing people to surface what they know about your system, about what you're building, about ideas that your team is tinkering with. This kind of format gives people the space to surface what they're thinking, even if they're not the most vocal person.
2: So one of this, like, really ties into what I was thinking when, you know, you say zines at work and and I'm, there's a couple of great tech zines, which I love. And I I think should be in a a lot of offices. But the idea of actually creating one at work, it kind of, you know, something happened in my chest when I thought about that idea. And it's because, it's because it's a very informal medium and whimsic and tends to be informal and whimsical. And, you know, you just, just kind of do it. Right. And I realized how much that is counter to to so much of how tech teams and tech industry runs, where it's it's very informal, you know. You can't you can't just ship code. You gotta gotta get a pull request and have it reviewed by the senior engineer and it's gotta gotta fit our coding standards and and run in order in time or less. And that can be very, I'll say challenging.
0: I think that's also exactly why it's like easy and fun to learn about tech from zines because it feels so much more approachable than like a formal tutorial and you saying like, oh, will this be too hard or what will I learn? And there's all of this baggage that comes along with it where it's like, oh, the zine is like cute and whimsical and I'm going to read it and it's going to be interesting. And then like, whoa, I just learned about like sorting from it.
2: Yeah, just because we're writing software or doing computer science doesn't mean we have to be serious. (laughs) In fact, probably means we shouldn't be. It
1: also makes me think about a a shift that I would really like to see in the way diagrams and things like this are used, which is that when you're asked to produce an architecture diagram, you're generally asked to, to produce something authoritative. Like it has to be the best current understanding of what the organization has decided to do and that doesn't leave any space for exploration or for using diagrams to ask questions. And I think that's bad because naturally on a team or in an organization, everyone has their own models. Everyone has their own local perspective on what's happening. And if there's no opportunity to surface, Hey, here's how I think this works can I compare that with how you think this works? You can't maintain common ground. And I don't think producing a lot of words is a great way to do that. I think that's very inefficient. And I also think that having an hour meeting with 20 people where you all talk about it is also inefficient. And so I'm wondering if diagrams can be useful here. It's relatively so a little bit quicker to draw some boxes and connect them with, with arrows than it is to write a one page, you know, like report. And I'm wondering like, if we could promote more people putting out these sort of low fidelity diagrams that are, here's what's in my head and sharing them. If that that would help us maintain common ground.
3: Absolutely. And I love the way that you, brought up this situation where everyone is, because I think we've all been in these meetings where it's like, there's some technical hurdle decisions have to be made. Technology needs to be chosen. Libraries need that type of thing. What I experienced was it was hard for me to get a word in edgewise.
1: And like, if you have 20 people in a meeting at most three of them are paying attention And about half of them are going to be under underrepresented in the meeting for a variety of reasons, if not more.
3: Yeah. Like, and you know, it it might, well, I'm just going to say yes. For underrepresented people, this happens a lot. And so one of the things that I like to promote is taking apart the traditional jam everyone into a room, let the conversation naturally happen. I'm just going to say it. I don't think that works too well. And honestly, I think that a zine format, or even if it's just like, take a piece of paper, let people diagram what they think is interesting, then trade. Then you have, your team is having a zine fair.
1: (laughs) Or like, if if you do that to prepare for the meeting, and then the meeting is going over them.
3: Sure. Sure. Yeah. And maybe the discussion is like a facilitated discussion. So I did a lot of agile team stuff, including like I had to go down the route of learning how to facilitate just because I couldn't get a word in edgewise on my team. So I started looking at different ways to how, how do you have a discussion when it's like, you know, there are two or three people who always talk. Nobody else says anything, but everyone has thoughts. And it's really interesting what happens when you start trying to change how a group is having discussions.
1: It also seems like it's super valuable for the person doing the facilitation because they have to sort of synthesize what's happening in real time. And then they come away with the meeting with the synthesis in their brains, you know, part of which they've been able to put into the the diagrams, the drawings and whatever but only a part of it. So it seems like if you have some external consultant come in and draw diagrams for your team, that external consultant then leaves with a bunch of the knowledge you were trying to impart to everyone else.
3: I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like in the world of graphic recording, those folks go to all kinds of meetings. And I think it's true that they are going to come away with like a different set of thoughts in their head. But they're also not gonna have the context of your team. And that's pretty yeah. that's a pretty big part of it. But like I know like Asha Rodenheiser, she's she's a graphic facilitator who does this and she'll go into meetings like the one we're describing. And while people are talking, she's drawing things out. And it's really interesting what happens when people see their discussion being drawn by like a third party. It's re- like, I've seen this happen at some conferences. It's really a great way to change the way you have discussion.
1: Yeah. So for example, we do incident analysis and we do interviews with the people who are there and we review like Slack transcripts. And what we find is that the people who are condu- like doing the interviews, conducting the analysis, facilitating the reviews, they become experts in the systems.
3: Ah, uh, yes, because so much it reminds me of how teaching somebody to do something, teach it, you teach it to yourself. So they are having to internalize all of this discussion and reflect it back to the team, which means of course they're kind of, they're learning along with the rest of the team.
1: Yeah. So I think my point was not like, don't hire consultants to do this. It was keep them around after you do. (laughs)
3: Wouldn't it be amazing if having a graphic recorder or graphic facilitator was, like, just a thing that we all yeah. had in our meetings?
1: Or even something that was democratized so that more people got the benefits of, like, I think doing that work has a lot of benefits to the, mm-hmm. pe- so the person who's doing it.
0: This is making me think a lot about, like, the way that you engaged with something or the way that you express it depending on who your target audience is. Like if I'm taking notes for myself in my own notebook, like my target audience is just myself and I write things that won't make sense to anybody else. And if I'm writing like a document for work, like the target audience is my team, I'm writing in a way that reflects that it's going to be read and understood by my team instead of me. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about here with like zines and diagrams and things like this is kind of an interesting hybrid. Like when I write a zine, like I'm doing it for me, it's benefiting me, but not in the same way as notes in my notebook where I don't want anyone else to ever look at it. So it's like, how do I write something that's benefiting me, but also has like an audience of other people that I'm hoping will get something out of it. And I think that's, a bit of a unique format in some
2: ways. That's interesting because everything I hear from novelists and screenwriters, it's always write the book, write the movie that you want, <laughs> you know, you're the audience. And if you love it, not everybody's going to love it, <laughs> but there are other people who will, Who will, chances are other people will love it. If you write something for everybody to love, nobody's going to like it. <laughs> <You> know,
3: <laughs> yeah, I think so too. And You know, you never know who else is going to be thinking what the same way you are, you know, and sometimes it's that people don't have a way to speak up and share how they are feeling in a similar way. So I actually love that zines allow, like, I think it is important to be making something that is from your perspective and then share that. And that's, like, that's a way to, you know, see who else has that perspective.
2: But I, I also understand, like, the, this need to, well, I'll say, I'll say code switch. This needs to code switch for different audiences. I, <laughs> Rain brought up UML. I learned UML in college back in the, the long ago times, and I hated it. It was an interesting thing to learn, but an awful thing to do. Because all of my UML diagrams had to be complete, authoritative, and correct. I was doing them for my professor at my RSTA, and I thought, well, if I had large UML digra- diagrams describing large systems, uh, looking at them could be very informative and useful, but no one, no one in the world is going to write those things because this is way too much work unless I'm allowed to be informal, general, you know, not, not authoritative or, or complete. And so, so I'm realizing these, these tensions that, that have been going on in my mind for decades.
3: Well, and those programs, using those programs was so clunky. Like adding a square, adding a label, adding a class. And pretty soon, if you were trying to diagram a large system, there was not a great way to change your perspective and go from macro down to micro and zoom out again. Whereas this is, I think, what is so great about the human brain, we can do that, and we can do that when we're drawing with our hands.
2: Yeah, there were promises of automated UML diagrams that you get from uh, type systems and static analysis. And I think <laughs> I saw some I saw some early versions of this, and they they created correct UML diagrams that were almost readable. <laughs> but going from correct and almost readable to something that's informative and enlightening, that's an art. <laughs> and we don't have computers that can do that.
3: Right. Like humans are not computers. Computers are not human. (laughs) Not, what is it? Not Turing complete. (laughs) I think that initially people really wanted to be robots when they were sitting down at the computer. And I think we're going through a period right now where we're rethinking that.
1: In, In part, it was management that wanted people to be robots which
2: reaches back to the industrial revolution.
3: And still does, right? What I love is that having this conversation about like how we work and how to build software, it brings up all of these things, including this type of like management wanting people to be robots. But we're not. And what's interesting to me and what I think is That if we could shift our perspective from, you know, let's make everyone a machine. We're all robots sitting typing out the stuff for people. If we could shift to thinking about like building software is a creative process. People are going to need sleep if you want them to solve your problems. You know, they're going to need different ways to express themselves and share ideas with each other.
1: I think it's really important to uncover facts about work and human performance. Like even if you have rules, policies and procedures, humans still have to interpret them and resolve trade-offs to get them done. You can have two rules that are mutually exclusive and now a human has to resolve that conflict. And also that we think that like the old, Paradigm that Damien is talking about, this Taylorist paradigm, is that managers decide how the work is to be done and then workers do what they're told. But workers to do this have to think about high level organizational goals that are much more abstract than what the people designing the work thought they would have to think about. And I think if you can uncover the like, this is all creative problem solving and it's a part of the day to day work.
2: Yeah, that command and control structure was always a fantasy. Uh, less so in some places than other places, but always, always a fantasy.
1: I mean, even the military is reevaluating what what C two means in the face of overwhelming evidence that humans don't work that way.
2: It's nice to pretend, though; <laughs> makes things so much simpler.
3: <laughs> What's interesting about this sort of changing paradigm and how we view like this management and control piece is how. This is kind of like manifesting in the world of academia, especially in the world of liberal arts, because like liberal arts colleges are not doing well. <laughs> in fact, like Mills College here in the Bay Area is not going to be taking freshmen next year. and They're going to close. But. You know, I think there's a theme of education in here, too. And how people learn these skills. Because we've been talking about zines. You do not have to have a degree to know how to make a zine. And that's awesome. (laughs) Along with these other skills. And I know that there are a lot of people in tech who they went through a computer science program. Or even a boot camp. And maybe they did some science before. Maybe not. But... You're still going to need these creative skills. And it may be like, you know, I think a lot of folks in the U S and in, in tech, it's like you weren't in a position to be able to study art or to get that much exposure because, you know, it was about survival, survival for your whole family. And there's just not the time to try and explore this stuff. I would love to see more space In tech for people to explore all of the creative arts and see like, how does it help you express yourself at work? The most concrete example I have of this is like writing up a software bug. So I used to be a tester and I could always tell who had writing skills and who didn't based on like how they would write up a bug. (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, and and, and I, I can definitely feel that. I work on a team of one for several projects, uh, so sometimes I have to write a, sto- a user story or a bug, and there there are very. I have a very strict format for for writing bugs. It's it's basically it's right on a cucumber, and yet I will take minutes and minutes and minutes to properly wordsmith that bug report for me. <laughs> So that Tuesday, as you should
3: doing a good so that, job.
2: So that Tuesday, when I read that, I know right away what it means and what it what it says. Whereas I can write something quickly that might be accurate, but would be difficult, more difficult for me for me to understand. For me to understand, or I can write something quickly that could be incomplete. Assuming that I found the bug, <laughs> I'm the one who put the bug in there. I know everything there is to know, and still come back Tuesday, I have no clue. Don't even know what the bug is. I, have, I actually had to throw away a feature this week because I had no idea what I meant when I wrote it.
3: I used to actually give a talk about this, how to write up bugs, because it was like such an issue. If you and if you don't train developers and other folks who are looking at an app to write them, you know, then it ends up the testers are the only ones who can write it up and that's not okay.
2: <laughs> but yeah, and, and when you talk about like a talk how how to write up bugs, you know, there there's some obvious mechanical things. Uh, how do you reproduce this what did you expect to happen who's doing it that sort of things and these are these are very clear and obvious but then but then there's the actual communicating via words issue <laughs> how can you write those things down in a way that's easy for the next person to understand and i spent a lot of time doing that sort of thing it's hard it's an art I guess
1: i just want to make like i want to turn this into an even more general point about the importance of the discipline of formulating your thoughts in a way that's available for consumption. So as an example, I used to write notes in a sort of shorthand way, where if I thought I knew something, I wouldn't include it because I already know that I don't need to take a note about it. And what I've found is that I couldn't explain stuff. I couldn't integrate the new knowledge with the old knowledge when it came time for me to answer a question. And the approach I've been taking more recently is formulating my thoughts in a way that if I had to write a blog post about that topic, I can copy and paste things from my notes, ready to go and just drop them in. And that's the thing I do for myself. But what I've found is that I actually understand stuff now
2: yeah i I've had the same experience uh writing things uh, that I thought I understood uh, and this is this is the rubber duck story right You think you understand something so you try to explain it to somebody else and go, oh, that's what it was but since we have Marlannie here right now, I want to talk about using <laughs> i want to talk about using diagrams and images in, in that process for a person who who doesn't who doesn't work that way usually
3: indeed well, one of the things that I think we hint at in the world of tech. So this is interesting because we've all been bashing the UML and all that stuff, but it did give us a set of, you know, symbols for visual representation of programming type things, you know, like you, you make the rectangle for your class and then you put your properties in the top and the um, methods in the bottom or something like that. and Something that I've noticed in the sketchnoting world is that sketchnoting 101 is how to draw at all, how to feel confident enough to put your pen on the paper and draw a line, draw a box, draw a circle, make them into objects, whatever. But once you're past that introductory 101 level of sketchnoting and you've done a few, the next Level up is to start creating your own language of visual representation, which I think people kind of do, whether they intentionally do it or not. And I like, I kind of find myself doing it like the way that I contain categories of information in a sketch note. I've kind of come to a particular way that I do it. And that type of thing is like, because we don't talk about creativity and representate, like we don't take the time to do these things. Like they're not really a practice. Everyone kind of just does their own. And like, I don't think I've like, I've been on teams that or tried to, I've tried to be on teams that had a fairly mature way of, you know, having a wiki, you're going to talk to each other. Agile teams and still like we might have a wiki, but it's not like we were always drawing together. I'm interested in like, have y'all had experiences on your teams of like drawing together, like collaborating on one drawing at the same time?
1: Yeah, we, we use a, uh, like a collaborative whiteboarding software to do, Various things. Um, And one of them is like drawing boxes that represent systems and architectures. And one of the exercises we sometimes do is we say, you get this part of the board, you get this part of the board, you get this part of the board. I want you each to diagram how you think the system works now. And then in 15 minutes, we're going to go, we're going to look at them together.
3: Yes, that type of thing. I think it's so important and I wish that more folks did it on their teams. Have y'all found that you have any kind of like visual representation that has started repeating itself? Like say a certain part of a system, you usually draw in a certain way.
1: Yeah. We have definitely developed a a language or or a discourse over time and some shorthands or mnemonics for certain things. And we, yeah, we've, not standardized, I think is the wrong word, but we've moved closer together in a more organic way.
2: Which is how language develops.
3: Indeed. Indeed. But this way of having this sort of shared visual language together is going to give you a shorthand with each other. And like when, you're, when you have a map you know, you have a legend and I think that like, it's important rain that you mentioned not necessarily having standards, but having some common, you know, common ways of drawing certain things together. That type of drawing together is very powerful for developing like your collective way of visualizing a system and thinking about it.
1: And another thing I want to highlight here is that if you ask four people to diagram an architecture and you get four different diagrams, that doesn't mean that one of them is right and three of them is wrong. are wrong. What that usually means is that you have four different perspectives.
3: Yes. We all have our internal way of mapping things. And it is not a right or wrong, a good or bad. It's just every person has a different map. A way of mapping objects in the world that is brain science stuff.
2: I get the opportunity to reference uh, my favorite, what I discovered just now, what today I discovered today is the Zine Principia Discordia. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, marvelous, yes, marvelous my work favorite. of art. And they say they say in Principia Discordia that the world is chaos. It's chaos out there, and we look at it through a window, and we draw lines in the window and call that order. <laughs> and so people draw different lines, and those are the diagrams you're going to get. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's so I have to. I have to interject that John Hogland, who's a philosopher, said something very similar, which is that the act of dividing the universe into systems with components and interactions is how we understand the universe. It's not something that's out. Those boxes aren't something that are out there in the universe. They're in here in our heads, and they're necessary for us to even perceive and understand the universe.
2: Which gives a whole new meaning to uh, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, but (laughs) we don't have to go that far down the road.
3: Well, even if we think about color and perceiving color and like, everyone's going to have a different thing that they see. It's going to like, you know,
1: there's philosophically no way to know if red for me means the same thing as red for you.
2: Mm -hmm. So applying that same standard to our technical systems, right. You know, some senior architect somewhere might, might draw a diagram and goes, this this is the truth of what we have built or what we should be building. Uh, and that there is, no, there is no external representation of truth. Oh, look, the map is not
1: the territory. We can go do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing for me is that, like, this is something that there are Eastern philosophies that have figured out long before Western philosophy did. So while Descartes was doing his stuff, you had the Jainist principle of Anakantavadra, which is the manifoldness of the universe. There's no one right truth, there are many interlocking and overlapping truths.
3: How does this relate to a GitHub repo? <laughs> it
2: well, means it's you're on it. It is correct.
1: It certainly <laughs> says something about distributed systems, right? And in distributed systems, we call this the consensus problem. <laughs>
2: I love the fact that Git was built to be this completely distributed, no single authority source control uh, source control system. And now we have GitHub.
1: Indeed. I want to know how I, as someone who has terrible handwriting, can feel comfortable doing the sketching.
3: Sure. I just did a whole meetup about that. It's not just you. I think that it's uh, 75% of engineers, and we emphasize typing, right? So what I tell people about handwriting, the very, very basics, is slow down. Not what you want to hear. I know. But it makes a huge difference. So this past uh, winter, my, so my pandemic... New skill that I learned is calligraphy. And in calligraphy, they tell you over and over and over to slow down. So that's tip number one is to slow down. And then number two is try writing larger. Try whatever it is you're writing. Play with the size of it. Larger and slower generally gives you a way to sort of look at what you're writing and which pieces like there are probably some letters that you dislike more than others when you are writing and you can take those letters that you really dislike and maybe it's just a matter of reviewing like how are you forming the letter i mean if it's all of them it'll take you longer but (laughs)
0: When I was like a kid learning cursive for the first time, I really hated to do the capital H in cursive. I think it's like an ugly letter and I think it's like hard to write and it was hard to learn. And my last name starts with H. So I had to do it a lot. And I like just designed a new capital H. And that's what I've been using in cursive since I was like a little kid. And nobody notices because nobody goes like, that's not how I learned cursive in class if they can read it. That's how I feel about language too. When we're talking about the way language evolves, people will be like, "That's not a real word." And I'm like, "Well, if you understood what I meant, then it's like a word." Perfectly. And possible. that's kind of how I like was just thinking about handwriting too. Like, what is there right or wrong if you can read what I'm expressing to you?
2: <laughs> yeah, if you look at if you look at the lowercase g in various glyph sets. You have to actually pay attention and go. This this lowercase g is not the same symbol as this lowercase g. <laughs> <laughs> like I have, you have to have somebody to call your attention to that. They are vastly, vastly different things.
3: The letters that look the same though are T, capital T, I, and F.
2: You don't you don't put crossbars on your eye.
3: Well, I'm thinking in terms of like so for calligraphy. I had to, when I got into the intermediate class, I had to come up with my own alphabet, like typography, you know, like design my own alphabet. And those letters were so similar. They just gave me fits trying to make them all like different. <laughs> but I think it's important for people to practice their handwriting i know that we all just scribble on the pad for charging or whatever you just scribble with your fingernail and it doesn't look like anything but keeping that connection to your handwriting is also an important way of valuing yourself and the space that you take up in the world i think it's It's really good if you can get to a place where you can accept your own handwriting and feel comfortable with it. Since I am into stuff like calligraphy and lettering, it's definitely part of my identity, the way that I write things out by hand. It's physically connected to you, to your brain. And so things like that, we want to say everything is typing in tech, but there is a value for your confidence for your brain and for how you process information to be able to write something by hand and feel confident enough to share that with somebody else
0: that was really beautiful actually but I was gonna ask like how do you think that relate how do you think your handwriting relates to like your voice because when you were saying that about like feeling comfortable with your handwriting and how it's like a confident self-confidence thing like it made me think of the way that people also feel and interact with their voice like you always hear people oh I hate listening to recording myself I hate listening to my voice
3: well there's that whole field of handwriting analysis just like there's that whole field of body language and that includes Uh, What someone's voice sounds like. It is attached to your personality and how you're thinking and how, like, how you're working with ideas. So it's not like, so (laughs) it's not like I'm judging someone when I look at their, sometimes I am, I'm lying. (laughs) Sometimes I am judging people when I look at their handwriting. I mostly don't, like, honestly, I think. We've lost so much education about handwriting in schools. What I dislike about that is, you know, we were talking about the power of print earlier. Well, if you feel uncomfortable writing your name, if you feel uncomfortable writing down what you believe in sharing it, that's a type of censorship, isn't it? So I think handwriting is important for that, like that type of thing. But it it is, like, I think it is connected to your personality.
0: It says something about you. And, like, when you put something out into the world that says something about you in that way, it's kind of a vulnerable experience.
3: It is. And you're showing people how you value yourself. And I think that's partly why a lot of times in tech, We've minimized the role of handwriting so much that nobody feels comfortable sharing their hand. Well, it's not nobody. That's a big generalization. But a lot of people don't feel comfortable sharing their handwriting. And that's like that is a loss. That is a loss for everyone.
2: I love what you said, um, in part because I didn't want to hear it. When Rain asked, How do how do you improve your handwriting? Uh, you said write slower and write bigger. (laughs) And I knew right away that that was correct because that's the only thing that has, that worked when I was trying to improve my handwriting. But I, I gave up on that because I didn't want, I didn't want to, I don't want to write slower and bigger Uh, because of what you said. I don't like taking up space. You know, if you look at my handwriting historically, it's been, it's been not taking up very little space, very little time. I don't want anybody have to wait for me to finish writing. I don't want to use this whole page. I don't. I don't want to think like my writing is so so important that it that it's all big on the page. But allowing myself to take up space and time is how I get to better handwriting. So that's that was just such a beautiful way of putting it.
3: Well, I read this book called How to Do Nothing by Jenny Odell, and it's a wonderful book where she. It just, the book blows me away and it's hard to talk about it because she has packed so much into it, but it's thinking about how we make ourselves go so fast and it's about the attention economy and, you know, how we are trying to speed ourselves up so much And I think that handwriting is part of this. If we are going to take back our own lives, that includes being able to slow down enough to write your name in a way that feels good to you, you know, and share it. I like what you wrote in the chat, Damien, but I'd like to hear you say it.
2: I wrote it in the chat, so I wouldn't say it. <laughs> uh, I, decolonize your mind, right? I, that that was—it was a message to myself. Decolonize your mind—the idea that you don't get to do nothing, you don't get to take up space and time. Yeah, and so that's just—it's—it's it's, it, all these things are so tightly connected.
3: So I think y'all are ready for me to tell you the story of how I came up with the first Let's Sketch Tech conference. I'm ready. <laughs> and this conference happened. Maybe 2017, 2018, I always forget the exact year. But it was post-Trump getting elected. Now, the Women's March, right after Trump got elected and sworn into office, was a major point in time and wake-up call for me. Like, I've always tried to learn more about politics And intersectionalism and things like that. But this march showed me the power of making something with your own hands and showing that and sharing it to someone else. And I wanted everyone to feel like, even in this era of Trump, we still have the power to make something meaningful and share that with our own hands. So that was when I decided to start emphasizing more and learning more about the connection between art and tech. And, you know, I'd been doing sketch notes and it sort of struck me that there was not much of a community out there that handled this topic, which I thought was just kind of strange. Like when I looked at sketch noting itself, it seemed like more was happening in the world of design. Well, What about engineers? Like I've had to draw out things so many times to learn them, to teach somebody else, to understand what's happening. And so that's when I put together this Let's Sketch Tech Conference. I wanted people to be able to retain the power to make something with their own hands because that can never be taken away from you, whether you have (laughs) internet connection or not. But even if you do have the internet connection, combining these together is just so powerful. And so that is why I started this conference in this community. And it's pretty deep. I don't bring it up all the time because it's kind of a lot. But yeah, and we had a great time.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing that story and, and everything else you shared with us. Uh, how do we feel about going into Reflections? The thing I'm going to be reflecting on in the broad sense, it's, it's, it's what I didn't want to say earlier until Marlena called me out, uh, decolonize your mind. But in, in a, in a smaller sense, it's how much of, how much of my view of the tech industry and my work in there and the environment in there should be formal structured, strict authoritarian. Like I had, I had all these ideas that, that are still unbeknownst to me, having a huge influence about how, how we can work. Um, the idea of a zine fest at work seems so outrageous to me, uh, because it doesn't fit into those ideas. And so I'll be reflecting on like, well, so where else am I seeing this stuff and how else is it preventing me from doing something so very, <laughs> so very effective? <laughs> I said Zinefest, fest. I feel like I, I, <laughs> I used to think I was too young to mispronounce that mispronounce zine, but, um, Whatever. (laughs) Who's next?
0: I can go next. So, my two favorite things I think that got said one of them was also about like the zine fair at work. Uh, I host zine fairs in my hometown and the idea of like, well, if you both draw something and then you trade, you're having a zine fair. I like absolutely love that. And then my other favorite thing was about the talk closer to the end about valuing yourself and the way and taking up space and all of those things and I feel actually kind of like I want to mesh mesh those two things together because talking about valuing yourself like really resonated with me the way that I do zines in my regular life not in tech but I think that inside of tech is like a place where I really there are people that I really want to see value themselves more and it's a system that has a tendency to uh, shut people down and pe- talented people and I want to imbue that kind of confidence into a lot of engineers, especially newer engineers. And so I think that I really like this idea of a zine fest at work and maybe that can, in addition to helping teach us about our systems and stuff, like help us encourage each other to take that time to value
1: ourselves. I think what struck me about this conversation the most is that creativity is good for people personally, individuals to explore our creativity, but when we share it with other people, that's a way that we can become closer. And I think that for work to happen, because to some extent I try to apply these ideas at work, people have to build and maintain common ground with each other. And I think that encouraging people to be creative and to share that creativity who like you typically wouldn't ask a junior engineer to draw an architecture diagram, but I think you should.
3: I hope that after listening to this, people definitely ask their newer folks on their team to draw a diagram and we'll share and trade with them. I think what I've learned from this conversation is, well, I think that it validated more than anything the ideas that I'm trying to spread about connecting arts and technology. And it was wonderful to hear each of you talking about kind of the struggles and challenges that you have at work in bringing this together. because. It is a different way of thinking, but I feel so positive whenever I talk about this and seeing people be able to recognize themselves and seeing sort of some doors and windows open about how they can incorporate the arts a little bit more into their tech lives is the reason why I do this. And it's been such a privilege to share this with all of you and your listeners. So thanks for having me.
2: It's been a privilege to have you. Uh, The idea that we can start out with like, let's draw pictures as engineers and end up with, oh my God, how do I become fully human? (laughs) It's really amazing.
0: Yeah, this was really great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this.
3: It was a lot of fun.
2: Why don't you give a pitch for your, for your podcast?
3: Sure. Well, I started the Patreon because it was an easier <laughs> way for folks to um, sign up for the meetups that happen. in let's sketch Talk. We do a monthly meetup and I'm starting to plan the conference for this year. There's a free newsletter, but if this is all some, this, if this podcast is giving you life, if you're getting oxygen from this conversation, I highly suggest checking out the Let's Sketch Tech Patreon. Sign up for our newsletter and subscribe to my podcast, Make It Appear. I talk a lot about creative process and tech.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us.